Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Hey, in this episode, we've got a very cool uh, interview with uh, Josiah Daniels, the person who wrote a neat article that we just linked on Twitter the other day. You might have seen it. It's called Because We Dare to Exist After Generations of Black Trauma, Gun Ownership is Around the Rise. It's a very good conversation that I think gets at a lot of the big ideas um, with violence and the Magnificast. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. But before we do, let me say this. Hey, if you like our show, you can subscribe and support us on Patreon, and we would really appreciate that. We do the show for free. We don't get paid to do it unless you subscribe to our show on Patreon. Um, so if you want to do that, you can. If you go to patreon.com slash the Magnificast, uh, you can support us at all kinds of different levels, and we don't really care which one you do as long as you do it. Um, that'd be great. Uh, if you can't, though, that's also fine. You can always just give us a nice review on iTunes. Um, if you do find yourself in a, in a place where you can support us financially, that's cool. It definitely helps us kind of like do the show and pay for things like hosting and all kinds of other things that come up when you have a podcast. Um, but in return, you get kind of uh, some special content. Uh, every week we do a, um, a behind the paywall podcast called The Lock-In, where we talk about, uh, I don't know, Reddit goofs and whatever's happening in the world. And uh, we also have a very cool Discord channel. So if you subscribe at $2 or more, you can get those things and uh, become a part of the Magnificast community. Man, I'm deeply uncomfortable being a salesperson. I don't like that at all. <laughs> I'll say this, though. It is extremely nice of everyone to do. And I was recently, I edit the lock-in. Matt always edits these ones during the week. Um, and as I was editing the walk-in podcast, uh, I was like super busy. And I had a lot going on this, this uh, last week. And I was like, man, I guess I just have to sit down and do this. And the nice thing was, as I was doing it, it made me think about how grateful I am that there are a bunch of people willing to support the podcast financially. And then I felt, OK, this is actually a thing that I'm allowed to prioritize in my life because I am going to get money from it. So <laughs> for that reason alone, uh, thanks for supporting the labor that we do in this podcast. There you go, Matt. It's not about sales. It's about our labor power. Um, OK. Let's talk about Josiah some more. Uh, Josiah is a little bit of background. I've known him for a long time. He's a good friend of mine from a university that we both attended called Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, an extremely bizarre evangelical school in Michigan. And uh, back then, we both studied philosophy. Josiah also studied a lot of stuff having to do with the Bible. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's some important background. Uh, evangelical schools are extremely weird places to get radicalized. But guess what? You, listener, who has that background, are not the only one. Lots of people end up like that. And Josiah is one of the best, I think, to have come out of that situation. So really grateful to be able to chat with him here on the show. Uh, one thing to note, though, there is some difficult content in the conversation. You can probably already guess that from the title of the article, which deals a lot with trauma, especially racial trauma and dealing with what it's like to be affected by um, living in a climate of violence, uh, to be affected by headlines about black people being shot constantly. And we just want to make you aware of that ahead of time. If you don't want to expose yourself to that, then maybe skip this one. Although Josiah does kind of flag it in his own uh, responses. So you can kind of make a decision as you go. But important to note that ahead of time. All right. With that out of the way, why don't we turn it over to Josiah?
Welcome to the show, Josiah. Um, Josiah and I have known each other for a long time now. It feels like, let's see, probably almost a decade or more, I guess, which is wild. Um, so it feels strange to have you introduce yourself to other people because I feel like uh, <laughs> we have some history, but all the more important for you to say a little bit about who you are. We always ask people to introduce themselves um, you wrote this great piece for Religion Dispatches that we're going to talk about in a minute. But before we get there, uh, who are you, Josiah? What do you do? Uh, what do you want our great listening public to know about you? Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, and my name, of course, is Josiah Daniels. Uh, I am a preeminent Chicago Bulls fan. I am the preeminent Chicago Bulls fan. Uh <laughs> for work, I assist people with disabilities, find employment. Uh, for fun, I write words, and I try to make them sound like notes coming from John Coltrane's sax. Um, I am the miscegenated nightmare the Republicans are always talking about. I am also the Black Lives Matter protester that makes both political parties deeply uncomfortable. Um, but more importantly than any of that, uh, I am a battle-hardened graduate of a certain school in Grand Rapids, Michigan, same school as a certain podcast host. Um, so, uh, yeah, glad to be with you guys, ready to get wet and wild with you guys. And then also really glad that you guys invited me on the Black History Month episode. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I don't think we ever had an introduction that's quite like that before. That was great. Um, so let's do it. We let's need get, more of that energy. We need more of that energy. <laughs> All right. I'll try to maintain it here for the for the hour. <laughs> let's do it. Well, just like you said, Josiah, let's get wet and wild. Um, <laughs> so uh, speaking of that religion dispatches piece you wrote, uh, it's called Because We Dared to Exist After Generations of Trauma, Black Gun Ownership is on the Rise. And it is an extremely good piece. I really loved reading it. Um, I think I've read it actually two or three times now, kind of going back through it. Um, yeah, based on the title alone, people listening might be wondering what your writing has to do with Christianity and the left, and uh, it's a lot. So uh, maybe you could kind of help us think through that a little bit and get in the right headspace. Uh, could you just give us like a quick elevator pitch for the article? Yes, and thank you for the kind words. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I have a background in sales, so so I'm going to crush this. So I want to <laughs> I want to uh, get this elevator pitch down right. So. I'm going to get in this headspace and then I'm going to go for it. Okay. This is the elevator pitch. Got trauma? America has plenty to go around if you feel you are running low. America not only has trauma to spare, we also are handing out the secret weapon to cure trauma. What is it, you ask? Guns, guns, and more guns. Rather than expecting your government to provide basic rights, services, and protection, why not take matters into your own hands by purchasing military-grade weapons? That is my elevator pitch for the, uh, <laughs> for the piece. But in all, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, uh, I wrote the essay after there had been multiple reports uh, that had come out about a surge in black gun ownership and I argue in the essay that the surge in black gun ownership is connected to the trauma of America's racist history, both past and present. Um, and then in regards to what does 
this all kind of have to do with being a Christian. Uh, I am a Christian by default as I grew up in a Christian home. So I've been a Christian now for 30 years. I grew up in an interracial home uh, where MLK was, was kind of like a second Jesus to us or Jesus 2.0. Um, and then once I got into college, I really started reading theologies that were influenced by uh, Dr. King's legacy. And then I started participating in protests. Uh, and then I started to identify as a liberation theologian and or a black Christian leftist. Um, real quick, and then throwing it back to you guys, but shout out to Matt Bonzo. Uh, who's one of Dean and I's old professors, but shout out to Matt Bonzo for doing a liberation theology class with only two students signed up, uh, me and Thad. Shout out to Thad too, actually. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah. So anyways, that's, that's kind of the long and the short of it. That's great. Uh, I love it. I love um, especially hearing the Josiah Daniels uh, game show commercial voice. That's very fun. <laughs> we'll have to find some good uh, some good music to put underneath that. Um, oh, yeah. You guys should use that however you feel. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll win us lots of fans uh, among a certain sect of people, for better or for worse. Um, yeah, but I think, uh, it's a great piece. Um, and you work all, all those things that you were just talking about, right? Your, your identity, the way that you've grown up, um, kind of searching for a, a radical kind of Christianity, and then also kind of navigating all these political issues. And in the middle of the essay, I feel like we should just sort of get down to it and, uh, you can open up some of these themes for us. You have a, a line that I think would make a lot of white Christians progressive or otherwise kind of bristle, um, so you write, what do you do after you've attended a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest where you were poked and prodded by the policeman's billy club, but then you watch those same forces roll out the dais carpet for Christo-fascist mobs at the Capitol? One answer is to gird oneself with armaments. And in the very next paragraph, you explain that onlookers might see people loaded up with guns as soldiers, but you say that in arming themselves, you see their humanity. I think... You know, that's going to be really tough for a lot of Christians to understand and kind of get our heads around and lots of people on the left, too. Right. Um, guns are a uh, I'm trying to find the right metaphor. I wanted to say double edged sword, but that seems bizarre. Uh, anyway, they're they're a complicated <laughs> well, that's perfect, thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a complicated thing, both for the left and for Christians. So can you talk to us maybe a little bit more about that? That turn, you know, what do you um, what are you sort of suggesting as you're wading into uh, thinking, you know, theologically or Christianly about uh, this this uh, rise in gun ownership, black gun ownership? The the clowns at the Capitol were uh, the way that they were treated is is kind of perhaps a perfect example of a double standard and, and kind of the reason that I wrote that line. And I call them clowns. Not to suggest they're not extremely dangerous, but because they're completely delusional. Um, and there is a war in this country, not on middle class white cops and or cop sympathizers, but the war in this country is on poor people, black people, brown people, LGBTQ people, um, and people who hate LeBron James like I do, uh, just joke. <laughs> um, but no, no, in, in, in all seriousness, um, you watch the way the police handled the mob, uh, who were not poor, disaffected workers, but business owners and hedge fund kids. Right. Um, 
you watch the way that these cops handled them and it's it's appalling when you compare it to the way the peaceful BLM protesters were handled there in DC, you know, months prior. Um and if you can't understand the difference in that treatment, then I'm like genuinely worried for your brain. Um and if seeing that doesn't radicalize you, I think you need to kind of start and start interrogating why that is. Um and I think a lot of black people saw the events unfold and they came to a tragic conclusion. Uh, I'm ready to shoot my way out of this hell if that's what it takes. Um, and that tragic conclusion, that traumatic conclusion, which uh, Resma Minicum does such a great job of, of exposing... Uh, in My Grandmother's Hands, which is one of the books that I reference in my essay. But uh, that trauma, the trauma of legitimately feeling like your body and the bodies of your loved ones are constantly under threat because capitalism has so twisted our perception of human relations. Um, that's enough to drive you to make desperate decisions. And decisions that largely go against human nature, namely killing another human being. Um, so I think that the most important truth I would like people to take away from uh, this essay is, and, and what I mean by, you know, that specific uh, section that you read before about, you know, what do you do when cops are beating your ass, uh, but then you see them sort of handle these clowns with kitty gloves. The, the thing that I want people to understand about the surge in black gun ownership and some of my uh, arguments in the essay, specifically around what black people should be willing to do to protect themselves, uh, I want people to walk away from this essay ultimately going, humans shouldn't have to resort to violence in an effort to ensure their existence. Um, and, you know, the most incredible thing to me when it comes to the aftermath of the Capitol mob has has been the media kind of just acting like it's no big deal that they killed a cop, right? Like, bro, if, the, if, if that would have happened at a BLM protest, it would be on the 24-hour news cycle... Like, you know what I mean? So does that mm -hmm. kind of answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I think that's exactly right, right? There's a really weird media event happening there for sure. What what has your guys' impression around, you know, some some of the aftermath of the Capitol mob? Like, what, what have you guys kind of been thinking through? Obviously, you have that great episode about... Uh, Christo-fascist, which again, I, I tag that um, in my piece. I thought that was a incredible episode. Um, but so what what else have you guys been working through since then? That's a great question. We didn't usually have the uh, tables turned on us as interviewers. So oh, I'm going to uh... I'm going to turn the tables <laughs> on you, mofos. So buckle <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah. 
uh, I have to gather my thoughts a bit. But I mean, I think it's that that sort of Christo fascism, you know, what are the elements of that? And how are those things going to sort of metastasize over the next four years under liberalism? Um, uh, you know, a, a different kind of liberalism. I think that's the, uh, the the thing that I'm thinking a lot about and don't have a lot of easy answers for, but just trying to maybe read the 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 tea leaves or the uh, the intestines or whatever it is to divine how how those things are going to go. I don't know, Matt, what have you been thinking of? Yeah, same. I mean, just reflecting on like the the most terrifying question, I think, is uh, is, is where are these people at now? Like where all these people go? And uh, the really troubling part is they went back to. Yeah, um, living off their their trust funds, they went back to managing the McDonald's they own. They, you know, they went back to their small businesses and uh, whatever. And I think that's such a um, such a disturbing part of it. Not not because of I mean, you know, the uh, the liberal rhetoric around it, around it was was all really frustrating, too, that, you know, they invaded the holiest of holies for, for the United States. They went to mm. the Capitol building and like, I don't really care about that part. I mean, it's bad that they did that, I guess. But like. I think what's worse is that there are these people who are like openly white supremacists, openly fascist, and that they just get to go back to their regular lives. And, uh, yeah. you know, meanwhile, in like the, the years following Ferguson, all of these like um, Ferguson activists have sort of disappeared or they've like um, oh seriously been murdered or whatever. And, you know, I, I don't I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not going to tell you what happened in those situations. But like, all, all I'm trying to say is that it raises some questions, though. Like, uh, it seems like the Black Lives Matter protesters, they don't get to live out um, peaceful lives where they, you know, manage a fast food restaurant. Um, they, you know, um, face long drawn out persecution and uh, other folks just get to kind of go back to their lives. And it's it's a little bit too much to bear, honestly. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess that's where I'm at. Just thinking about all of the very <laughs> the very bad things. Um that uh, maybe are lying under the surface now. I know. And it's really, I think the thing that's really hard for me is as a abolitionist, uh, I really want to avoid the impulse to say about uh, the people who, you know, desecrated the Holy of Holies, the, you know, the Capitol. I really want to avoid the impulse of, of saying like, you know, I think all those people need to be locked up. Um, and at the same time, you know, there, there's this great, uh, piece and we don't have to talk too much about this cause I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's this great piece in the nation today by Callie Holloway, all about sort of that impulse of I'm an abolitionist, but I really want these mofos thrown in prison. Uh, it's really great. I would encourage listeners to, check it out follow her on twitter uh no it's yeah. a good thing to bring up i mean um that impulse is a good one to interrogate within ourselves right if we're people who are really against um the whole logic of carcerality we have to think through what that means for us um yeah i don't know i've been thinking about that myself and i don't really know the answer i don't have like a really good one <laughs> and i'll go read the nation piece later because that sounds pretty fascinating but i mean if anything it's you know these are these are people that uh, they don't need to be locked up. They need to be like deprogrammed. You know, we need to find ways to organize them yeah, away from uh, seriously from the weird, <laughs> the the weird sort of like structures of knowledge they work themselves into. I think that's the work that needs to be done. But how you do that is uh, is another story altogether. Well, um, yeah. I, first of all, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's great. It's a great point. Um, but I do want to I want to talk about your essay a little bit more because I think there's some really fascinating stuff still to draw out. Um, 
you know, so you're you're talking a, a few minutes ago about that uh, that that trauma and um, of 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 people of color of black people watching the the riots and the mob at the the Capitol. You know that the trauma that that causes. Not to mention, you know the. <laughs> the 300 plus years of of slavery and Jim Crow and, and all kinds of other anti-black racism. But, you know, there's all kinds of different ways trauma gets heaped on the people. But um, something that comes out in your essay that I think is really fascinating and that um, would really, I think, benefit people from hearing more about is the the tension in your piece between thinking through your black identity as something synonymous with the struggle and trauma of being like a soldier on the one hand and also just trying to live your life on the other hand. I think that is something um, really worth getting out on the table. In the conclusion of your essay, you put it like this. I do not want to have the trauma of a soldier, and yet I do. Some of the trauma I inherited from my parents, some of it I experienced firsthand, and all of it must be talked out. All of it must be hurled godward. Surely the fight will come to an end. I believe we will win. So can you tell us more about that that tension, that tension of trauma, of the, you know, the tension of, of you know, you have to be a soldier. You don't want to, you but, but you do. And you also just want to live a regular life. Well, what's what's going on there? Like, I guess help draw some of that out for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got to open a can here. So <laughs> people are going to you guys can either edit this out or not. Uh, no, it's, it's staying in for sure. <laughs> uh, it's a it it's a San Pellegrino. Do you are, are you guys sponsored by San Pellegrino? <laughs> we aren't. But maybe okay. maybe after this episode that we will be. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk to a guy I know over there. Um, yeah, so the feeling of always having to prove your life and your perspective and your experience are legitimate is truly existential. Um, hashtag Kierkegaard. Uh, how long did we go there, Dean, before Kierkegaard was mentioned? Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so I think that uh, the thing that has been the hardest for me to come to terms with is the fact that being raced as black and having the bravery to embrace that identity while simultaneously loving myself and loving others is extremely revolutionary. And that's been hard for me to come to terms with for two reasons. One is throughout college and graduate school. Yikes. Um, I was constantly in this mode of, of trying to prove that I, and by the transitive properties, right, we, as in black and brown people, had something to offer to the larger society if, if, only, if only we could be viewed as humans, right? Um, and that's why I love that Du Bois essay, which I, I tag uh, in my piece as well. The name of the essay is Striving for the Negro People. Um, but, but Du Bois, uh, he articulates that feeling, that existential feeling so brilliantly. The other reason I think it's hard to, uh, come to terms with the revolutionary nature of simply existing, of simply knowing that as a black person, I'm always going to be viewed as a soldier, but in reality, again, just my existence is... (laughs) is the very thing that that calls my soldier soldiering into being but but the other reason that that's really hard to accept is because P- PTSD is a motherfucker. And so there are all kinds of things trauma 
will make you think. And one of my favorite things that my trauma says to me is you're not doing enough. There's a war in the street and you're in here sitting on your ass playing your PS5. Um, And so that's one of the big struggles that I'm trying to sort of get out in the essay. This idea that, uh, you know, whether you decide to go full Nat Turner on these people's asses or whether you're just kind of like Breonna Taylor, there's always this sort of specter of death over you as a black person. And of course, I would argue that it's not only black people, but it's also poor people, brown people, LGBTQ people. Um, But so... You know, when I when I read authors like Emily Towns or Kelly Brown Douglas or Aja Monet, um, and I realized that the way that the actual revolution starts is not with a gun, but with ruthless, radical love, and that's that's Aja Monet. Um, but so the revolution starts with that love, love of myself, the love of my neighbor. And that's when it kind of dawned on me that simply being is enough, that being is radical. Um, And at the same time, being brave enough to uh, celebrate my humanity could just as easily be a death sentence in the wrong context. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that's, that's, uh, again, why I really hope that if people by now don't know about Brianna Taylor, they'll read my essay and they will look her up. Um, you know, but she was sleeping and the cops still murdered her and they got away with it because to exist while black in this country is enough to get you labeled as a gorilla. Um, and I think that realization has been very existential for black people it's been very existential for me, of course, uh, which is why many black people have decided to take up arms, which, again, I want to emphasize is extremely unfortunate. It's, it's extremely tragic. Yeah, it's interesting that you put it that way, tragic, Josiah, because, you know, I've always known you as a pacifist. That was kind of the reputation that you had at Cornerstone as an undergraduate. Um And uh, still, I mean, as long as I've known you, I've always known you as a a very like a person who is very angry that people are not being peaceful, you know, (laughs) and I've always I've always appreciated that disposition in you and that kind of language of tragedy makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'd like to hear you maybe talk a bit more about that. You know, you wrestle with this question of violence in really complicated ways in the piece. Um, what's your journey been like as somebody who, who has this and had this kind of reputation for being the radical Christian pacifist, someone who's really thinking hard about what it means to be nonviolent in that, you know, Martin Luther King kind of legacy and how have the last several years maybe challenged or deepened your thinking or complicated it in ways that have allowed you to, uh, you know, enter into this, this kind of analysis of gun ownership, you know, as, somebody who's not just trying to uh, moralize or be paternalistic about it or anything, but trying to really understand what, what the tragedy is behind that kind of phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I would still say that I'm a proponent of nonviolence. Um, and I would say that for no other reason than to make big pacifists upset. Uh, but before I, before I answer this question, I'm going to turn the tables on you guys again. Because, because I'm genuinely interested in this, um, 
And I think that I want to make sure that we are all on the same page. But how do you guys distinguish between pacifism and nonviolence? That's a good question. You know, all these kinds of this is the a good philosopher's answer. Um, terms are always floating around <laughs> and they're very hard to pin down. And sometimes maybe you shouldn't pin them down. You should kind of let them float around. Uh but sure. but if I had to, I guess I would say something like, it's hard for me to understand being nonviolent because violence is a uh, a complicated word. You know, lo- lots of things are violence. Words are violent. Actions are violent. Violence is more than just kind of like two bodies hitting each other in space. Um, there's more happening yeah. in, in that word. But I think that you could, I would call myself a pacifist insofar as ultimately what I really want is peace. But I sort of feel like sometimes um, the road to peace is not so peaceful. And that's unfortunate. Matt, what what would you say? Yeah, I'm really thinking about it now. Um, Yeah, I think, Dean, I I agree with you. I mean, we've talked about violence a lot on this podcast and sort of the complications with it. And I think um, calling into question in a very literalistic way what nonviolence would even mean, I think, is really, um, I think, the place that I might start. but I think of pacifism as people who um, this is maybe a less philosophical answer than you, you Dean. But when I, whenever I think about pacifism, I think about Christian peacemaker mm-hmm. teams. This is like a very explicit kind of thing. But like people who, um, you know, they they are, I don't know, American Christians or they're from North America or from the UK or whatever. I, I don't really know what their demographics are. It's not important. But they go to like Palestine and they like they walk kids to school and don't let other kids, you know, like settlers right. or whatever, throw rocks at them. I guess I think that of, of that is pacifism. Um, uh, I guess at the core, sort of like trying to preserve a certain type of peace so that other conversations can happen that um, that you can negotiate power through. I mean, that's pacifism at its best. There's also, you know, the very bad moralizing, like uh, Christian on an Internet <laughs> forum. Yes. kind of bad. That's yeah. I, but I guess that's that's at, at its best. Though. That's what it looks like. Right. It's trying to preserve a certain uh, type of uh, disposition toward one another so that conversations can happen rather than degrading into violence. Yeah. No, that's I mean, I ultimately couldn't agree more with you guys the only thing that i think and i mean i think that basically we're saying the same thing but just slightly different the reason that i prefer nonviolence over the term nonviolence over pacifism and this is I, i'm sure just like probably personal baggage in my experience especially when i was in grad school christian pacifism was like really sexy <laughs> yeah. and mm. So I kind of like made an intentional pivot away from it and sort of started to embrace nonviolence as a term more so because I felt like that was a little bit more in tune with like Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, specifically like nonviolent strategy. You know, you think of like the student uh, SNCC, like the uh, – what is it? Student nonviolent. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the I stands for, but the student nonviolent committee, Kwame, uh, Kwame true, uh, Stokely Carmichael. So anyway, so that's why I say more so that I'm a proponent of nonviolent versus pacifism. But to Dean's point, I do think that ultimately it's sort of a philosophical thing. Um, but the point that all of us agree on is that 
violence should ne- should only be resorted to as kind of a last effort, right? Or said differently, because I've thought about this a lot, especially with, with you know, the whole, sh- all the shit that happened at the Capitol. But I think, uh, dissimilar to the right, violence is not a feature of leftist politics, right? But it's a tool to be used out of desperation. Um, and you guys said this on the Christo fascist episode, and I think it's worth repeating here because I believe in it so deeply, but people being murdered by the state, even people we might consider enemies, that's always a negative. It's always bad. Um, and I want to make sure that like people know that's where I stand. And I think it's where you guys stand too. Um, but while I absolutely abhor and condemn any form of state, state sanctioned violence, I also believe Marginalized people have the right to use the any means necessary Malcolm X approach. Um, And I came to that conclusion uh, for two major reasons. One involving my identity as a Christian and the other involving my commitment to materialism. Um, So on the one hand, as a Christian, my ultimate concern is the liberation of oppressed people. My job is not to, you know, like you said, Matt, get on Christian internet forms and critique the strategies of the oppressed for, you know, resorting to whatever means to liberate themselves. Uh, My job is to stand in solidarity with them. And then the second reason, and I mean, this is a little bit heavier, so, you know, I don't know if you guys do content warnings on the pod, but I'll put one in here. But But the second reason is because... Uh, When Tamir Rice was murdered, I had a truly existential crisis because I thought of my youngest brother, who is now 17. Uh, He was around the same age, though, as Tamir Rice. And uh, I had this thought. If there's no accountability for this police officer and then Christians either demonize Tamir or they dismissively suggest he is in a better place, I cannot, in good conscience, continue to throw my lot in with Christian pacifists. Because to me, there's one life. This is our one life here on earth. This is all we have. Um, And I find it really disturbing and convenient that in situations where oppressed people are on the receiving end of deadly force, the best thing that Christian pacifists can do usually is to talk about some sweet by and by. Um, and, I, and I just can't accept that. Uh, Tamir Rice does not belong in some ethereal plane. Uh, he belongs here on this earth with his family. Uh, and because I began to believe that so deeply, I had to begin thinking a sort of depressing thought, which was, what would I do to stop an unjust death? And I came to the conclusion I would be willing to do anything. Um, and I ultimately view the dichotomy between violence and nonviolence to be completely fictitious. And I'm wondering what you guys think about that, too. Um, or, you know, it's like said differently, what I think is a lot more interesting is to ask who gets to say which violence is legitimate and which violence is illegitimate. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a there's a cultural construction of um 
of violence in that in that way or maybe like uh of legality of violence or something yeah i think that makes a lot of sense yeah it sounds good to me i think that's always the right uh, question too of who gets to decide what's violent and what's nonviolent, and it lets you ask more interesting questions i guess about what those terms are are doing yeah for sure you know um just a minute ago uh you you said a phrase that might have confused some listeners who have not attended Christian universities who are not in the discourse of uh, of Christian politics. You said the phrase, uh, or you said something. You said something to the effect of that uh, the, the the sexy Christian pacifism. And I think oh. that maybe that we need to, we need to take a second here. Um, if you're listening at home and you and you heard that come by and you're like, what could that possibly mean? Um, let's talk about that for a second. Josiah, what's sex? What's sexy Christian pacifism? What's that one about? Oh, my God. OK, OK. Um, I, I don't want to call anybody out, but I'm going to. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you're, you're you welcome know, to whatever we I think we can all three have a good laugh about this, hopefully. And then people listening at home, they can have a good laugh. But. When Dean and I were in college, Shane Claiborne was really popular, right? And, you know, to, to a certain extent, and I don't know how Dean feels about it, but I know that I've, you know, worked through, you know, some of, some of this, you know, Irresistible Revolution, you either loved it or you hated it. Now, the thing that I find, that, the thing that I found really interesting and liberating about it at the time was that it was really clear it was radical considering the context that we were in um and at the same time it was sort of a cheapening of everything that someone like martin luther king jr would have stood for in my opinion you know it's kind of and dean you can again you can jump in here anytime you want but you know shane claiborne's thing was in the irresistible revolution was you know there's no left, there's no right, uh, there's only, you know, the donkey or whatever. Uh, and I just, you know, that was really sexy at the time. And I'm thankful that I read it then because I think it gave me the groundwork for where I am now. But uh, it was very, very popular. Uh, a lot of white people with dreadlocks. <laughs> over to you <laughs> yeah i thankfully did not have dreadlocks but i'll admit that i almost did one time so i can own up to that uh part of my past 100 percent um yeah you know we, we've talked about this at length on the show here in a, a handful of occasions both matt and i also you know we were big big claiborne heads as you might say back in the day um jesus for president during the whole uh um election year in 2008 i guess it was um yeah, so it was a and and in the same way, it's like, you know, it, at that time coming out of like Bush era evangelicalism, that was a really uh, powerful thing to hear and a, a probing thing and an important thing to kind of sort through. Um, but yeah, I, I the way you put it just now is I think helpful to me that um, the kind of pacifism that's presented in in that sort of vision uh, by Shane Claiborne but others too is one that's sort of. Um, you know, it, it tones down a, a certain radical tradition of nonviolence by not by refusing to think politically, by choosing instead to think in a Christian way um, or what it thinks is a Christian way to the exclusion of political nuances or difference. Um, it'd be it'd be interesting to hear what I don't know if Shane Claiborne thinks about all that now. <laughs> it's hard to say. 
<laughs> yeah, I would I would be interested to hear too. Um, you know, yeah, but that's kind of what I mean by sexy pacifism, and it's still a big thing. And you know, I think listeners who maybe kind of keep up with the Christian Twitterverse have some ideas of people who are still kind of propagating some of that bullshit. I mean, I'll, again, I'll just say it like Brian Zahn, you know, like he's kind of one of the worst. Um, so yeah. Uh, anyway, that's... <laughs> tell us how you really feel just that. <laughs> oh, I, I think all that makes sense though. Like I, like Dean said, uh, I was a big Shane Claiborne head. I, I think I still have quite a bit of respect for him as a person. Uh, I mean, I, I at least know that there are places I disagree with him very fundamentally, but I think he has at least uh, some really good intentions about politics, but I think just expressed very poorly. But, but, but like that aside, like I think that his work for me was like very pivotal uh, to kind of boosting myself out of uh, a type of right-wing evangelicalism towards something else. I guess what, what makes it sexy though is how absolutely slick it is as a political maneuver like, I mean, and the same can be said for Brian Zahn, though. But, like, I think I, I think I like Shane Claiborne more than Brian Zahn, for sure. Oh, but, dude, that's not even but what's, a question. <laughs> yeah, of course. Not a good comparison. <laughs> Shane Claiborne is, is at least cool. Um, the, the thing that's smooth about, though, is that it lets you it lets you out of the tough questions of politics without really taking a stance. And that's what's so sexy about it is that you can be against you can be against everyone, have the perfect Bible answer. Um and uh and you just kind of like get out of get out of the entire discourse of politics by just saying yeah not uh not a republican or democrat but i'm just i'm all about this guy that rides his donkey <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's such I an mean, interesting um construction of of like the ways that christian politics go very bad even though they're well-intentioned yeah i mean talking about sexy political moves though i think that you can do the same thing with the question of violence, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, and I hope that this came through in the piece, you know, using violence against another human being always causes trauma. There's no way out of it. Um, But I think just because of the political climate right now, I think that there are certain, uh, you know, big leftists on Twitter saying shit like, you know, I can't wait to behead Jeff Bezos and put his head in a trebuchet so we can launch it into the sun. And I'm always like, (laughs) okay, like, that seems a little intense. And like, do you know what it actually would take in order to like, kill a person and so like to me there's this discourse happening around violence that's both like at once really silly and really cynical does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i think it's cathartic for people to talk like that but also you're right like it it does foster a really harmful type of desire in a person to uh to to orient a lot of their politics around uh yeah like (laughs) decapitating jeff bezos or something yeah uh i think i think that's right i don't know it's uh it, it seems like it, it's a nuance that shouldn't be that hard, right? That if you're against the um, the violence inherent in the capitalist political system, in racial capitalism, and all of these other types of oppression, like that same 
that should that should apply to your enemies too. It doesn't mean that your enemies are, cannot be held accountable or whatever, but it, it just seems like they're that type of nuance shouldn't be so hard. But um, but you're right, it is it is a thing yeah. that people struggle with. Yeah, and I mean you know whatever I struggle with it too, so I'm not saying that I don't. And at the same time, I just I really want people to think about the trauma that violence causes and yes i want the revolution yes i want you know my student debt forgiven and health care for everybody and and at the same time if we have to if it comes to the point where we're having to use violence in order to achieve those efforts there's going to be irreparable damage that is done to us and we have to be able to admit mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important and a healthy conversation to have on the left, too, because there is a a glorification of violence on the left for reasons that in some ways I can kind of understand. You know, like if you're if you're like in the jungles of Nicaragua and you're fighting the Contras or whatever, and you emerge from that struggle victorious, like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, good for you guys. (laughs) Like that's a that's a kind of veteran appreciation that I can get behind. Um but, uh, you know, at the same time, like, I think it's important not to confuse the uh, the struggle for justice with just kind of like vengeance and bloodlust, because these are two very different things that do get conflated. And um, I think you're absolutely right to kind of be like, you know, just because something might sometimes be necessary um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's even a, a, a sort of good or, you know, celebratory thing. Exactly. Um, I, I always think exactly. about like. You know, Marx himself, people don't talk about this much, but he he was open to the possibility that one could have a nonviolent transition to socialism. He wasn't optimistic about it (laughs) because he thought politically it was, you know, not likely. But he he was happy to admit that, like, yeah, if they could do it, they should do it that way. Um, At the time, he had thought like he speculated very kind of loosely that maybe they could do it in the U S or the UK or Germany where there were kind of, you know, strong labor movements. But, uh, the point being that, uh, there's nothing essential about violence in the struggle, except insofar as, you know, sometimes the ruling class forces your hand and you have to make a decision to either, you know, be killed or accept, you know, a regime of, of torture or not. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important to have those conversations in a morally complicated way for sure. It's beautiful. You know, Josiah, something I really appreciate about your article that I think is maybe just started clicking the place with my brain a little bit right now um, is that, you know, putting the focus of violence um, and and nonviolence on the problem of trauma in people, I think is actually really strong. Um, you know, kind of going to the, the big Marxist point, though, is is that, you know, the material conditions that you live in shape the way that you think about the world and shape the way you think about other people and your place and all of that for sure. Right. And, um, you know, you, you got to imagine, I mean, I've never killed somebody, so I don't really know firsthand, but I am, uh, I can, you know, we can, we can, uh, think speculatively, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to get really nervous about this. I don't want to admit to anything on this podcast. Oh. Um, no, uh, but like, you know, if your material conditions really are like, um, influential in the way that you think about the world, I mean, you have to think about what the trauma of revolutionary violence would actually do to you <laughs> and make you think about the world. Right. You know, the people people formed in revolutionary situations. I mean, they, it's not like they get off scot-free. It's not like that's just like a, a sort of neutral moment for them as people. Oh yeah. Um, right. Like it's a, it's a thing that can have irreparable, irreparable damage. It's, it's something that it's, it's trauma that can last with you, even if the violence is justified. I think that's something to think about. 
just just real quick and then we can we can move on but one thing that i think about and i'm glad that you picked up on that in in the piece matt is uh when martin luther king jr died he died when he was 39 this actually might be something that you guys know but uh for the listeners at home so he died when he was 39 he was assassinated right uh by the fbi um and when they did the autopsy on his body, he had the heart of a 60-year-old. I mean, that's how stressed this motherfucker was. Now, something that's really interesting to me is the narrative in American politics and sort of like American ethics even, you could say, is, well, you know, you want to be nonviolent because that's like good for your heart. It's good for your soul. Dude, Martin Luther King Jr., again, he's like he's like Jesus Christ to me. That dude loved everybody. And when he died, he died with the heart of a 60-year-old. So this idea that somehow nonviolence is like morally superior or it is like healthier for you, it's bullshit to me. I mean, I just, I don't, I, I really just reject that outright um but then at the same token malcolm x who is another person i've really learned to love later in my life because you know growing up we're christians he's a muslim so we don't really you know do that shit um but later in life i I really grew to love malcolm x but again matt it's like you're saying one of the things that you have to ask on behalf of the revolutionary is what kind of trauma was that person forced to experience. Do you think that Malcolm X wanted to end up being who he was? No, the dude just wanted to like be treated like a human, right? Like he just wanted to have a normal life and they fucking killed him too. So, yeah, I think um, the way you're putting it now is really helpful too, Josiah, because, you know, we've been talking about what's the kind of um, trauma that violence might do to you, but maybe a more relatable question even is what is, what is the kind of trauma that you're basically forced to live with just by virtue of trying to lead a a just and ethical life. Mm. Um, And when you pile on the rest of the material in your essay too, right. Being black in America, being committed to nonviolence, seeing yourself in this kind of horizon of freedom, um, that kind of uh, trauma continues to sort of compound, you know, in this, this really uh, difficult way. Um, and I think I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that, like, uh, the way of nonviolence, right? Even if you admit that violence might be necessary, you're still trying to sort of live a a way of nonviolence. Um, that way is extremely stressful and challenging and frustrating. Uh, and also, um, you know, it, it, it makes demands of you that it doesn't make on other people who don't go through life thinking that way. Um, how do you sort of navigate that? feeling of trauma and uh you know how do you uh how do you sort it out you know how do you go through life not being um a wreck all the time or how do you deal with being a wreck all the time <laughs> however it is yeah i mean i mean the biggest thing and again if people don't come away with anything from my piece except that they should see a therapist and talk to a therapist i'm all for that um we have to work through our trauma it is good to talk to therapists, good to talk to friends and family, but it's very important to talk to professionals. Um, and then, you know, you got to exercise. You need to eat three meals a day. You need to 
uh, eat your vegetables. You need to, you know, be able to do some fun recreational things, um, play video games. Uh, you know, you need to, you need to take care of yourself. Um, I'm not trying to turn this into a self-care podcast because I think we all know self-care is a little bit of a racket too. Uh, but you know, it's important if you're, if you're trying to sort of deprogram yourself from the trauma, you need to do these specific exercises. Um, and by exercises, I don't just mean like the movement of one's body, but I mean, talking to people, going to church, um, reading books, spending time in silence, spending time in meditation. Uh, a lot of those things have helped me some more than others. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, I want to say something too, just about kind of the, the epigenetics piece, this idea that trauma can be, um, passed generationally. There is a good, uh, discourse, good discourse. There, there, there is, um, important discourse happening around sort of this new research on epigenetics and, you know, black bodies. Uh, and I, you know, I tag it all in the essay. One of the things, though, that some black people are saying, some black scholars, they're saying, if we rely too much on this research, what ends up happening, what could end up happening is we end up pathologizing black people. And so what I mean by that is um, if there's too much reliance on sort of this idea of post-traumatic slave syndrome and how that's something that's passed from one generation to the next, what ends up happening is you end up biologizing race to a certain extent, right? And we all know that race is a social construct. Um, so you end up bi- biologizing race, and then you also end up only being able to see the black body as disfigured, as problematic, and we don't want that, right? And so I just want to make sure to throw that out there that those conversations are happening uh, too. Um, nonetheless, though, I do think that the study of trauma and its trans-generational uh, impact on black and brown people is something that uh, should be used in sort of in partnership with critical race theory. Um, does that make sense what mm-hmm. I'm saying there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, those are kind of some of the things that have helped me deal with uh, my trauma, but it's still hard. And I mean, living in America, Matt, where do you live? Do you live in the United States? I live in Missouri, the most United States place there is. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm from Illinois, so uh, it's like a cousin to Missouri in a sense. You know, yeah. You know what it's like. Yeah. But I mean, so, you know, Matt, you're here. Dean, you are from Michigan, so you get it too. But it's like living in the United States, especially right now, every day you're going to experience some new type of trauma. Um, and that's really tough. I think it is. 
Um, it's it's good to call it out, though. I think it's good to call it out the way that you've done it in this essay and the way you're doing it right now. I think it's a a great a great thing to start pointing out to people that the that we're living through a lot, <laughs> and to take time to process it is really worth doing. Um, ignoring it is not something you should do. <laughs> Well, um, let's see. We've covered a lot of bases here. We've talked about your your article a little bit. We talked about nonviolence. We've talked about violence. You said to eat your vegetables, and that's all very good, I think. Um, so I don't know. Like uh, maybe we could let you have the last word um, in terms of like the the big picture kind of things that we've been talking about here. What do you want Christians, leftists, and Christian leftists to take away from the work that you've done in uh, in the article that you wrote? Yeah, so big picture, I would say uh, for Christians who maybe aren't hip to the jive yet, uh, you know, and when I when I say Christians here, I'm specifically kind of thinking of, uh, you know, Franklin Graham or whatever, like, you know, your time's coming to an end, buddy, like it's kind of over. Uh, and I think that I think that that's something that people like him already know which is why so much of this terror is happening in america right now but for leftists um i do not know exactly i have to be honest um i think sometimes i find some of the leftist hashtag discourse to be kind of esoteric and a little uninviting um which i think is kind of why i tend to stay out of it on Twitter. And I mean, you know, I think certain leftists would quite possibly read what I wrote and find the re- the, the racial component to be really uh, problematic. Uh, you guys know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so, yeah. Uh, but then for Christian leftists, uh, I would say let's focus on making our messaging accessible and welcoming, welcoming, um, you know, no AOC is far from perfect, but I have a crush on her. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, back to reality here, but no, you know, AOC, she's, she's far from perfect, but her messaging is accessible Um, and I think it's radicalizing people kind of, you know, the same way Shane Claiborne radicalized people. Um, and you know, she's Catholic. She's, she's part of Christianity. Uh, so, you know, I think that she's a great gateway drug. So yeah, those would be some of the things that, that I would say. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Um, if there's one, if there's one thing though, that I could tell people that they should look more into, uh, from my essay is check out Kianga Yamada Taylor. Uh, she is a Princeton professor. Brilliant. She's written the books, um, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And then she has also, uh, written Race for Profit. I've not yet read race for profit um but definitely check her out great author very accessible leftist um and she's probably my my favorite scholar right now. yeah she's great um well i'm pretty sure that aoc does listen to the podcast so hopefully she gives you a call after this that would be does great. she really that would be- <laughs> no no i don't <laughs> i don't think i mean we have no way i don't even think shane claiborne listens to this podcast so 
<laughs> we got some work to do. I think so. <laughs> it's true. We need we need to get these people listening to our <laughs> podcast. It's so important. Um, anyways, Josiah, thanks so much for joining us and talking to us about your essay. It's, um, I think, really great. Uh, it's definitely sparked a lot of things for me. So I hope other people uh, take the yeah, time to read it. Yeah, at the end, uh, is there anything that you also want to plug, Josiah, or uh, make people aware of um, or direct them someplace? Oh, anything that I want to plug? Um there's so many people that I owe a thank you to, um, you know, thank you to you guys even for doing what you're doing. Um, I know that, you know, sometimes you can maybe feel like you're kind of speaking into a void, but you do have an audience and your work does matter. So thank you to you guys. Um, and then I also want to just say thanks to Cleve Tinsley, who is the guy who edited my essay before I sent it off to Religion Dispatches. He's an incredible person, great friend. He's a, he's a mentor to me. Um, and uh, then I also want to make sure to give a shout out to David Congdon, who uh, is a personal friend and a mentor that I owe a lot to. He's a freedom fighter. And uh, I I don't know if my Christian faith would have been coherent without him. Uh, specifically, I'm thankful for his book, The God Who Saves. Um, and the existential nature of all of my writing is really thanks to him. So, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of people I want to say thanks to. Of course, thanks to my parents, my lovely parents. Uh, they're beautiful and uh, I, w- I would not be anything without my folks so so yeah but this was super fun guys i really appreciate it uh i think this is actually the first time i've ever been on a podcast <laughs> well i'm glad that you got the uh, award show speech at the end i think that uh seems appropriate <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah but this was really fun guys thank you yeah thanks for coming on josiah yeah. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. Again, if you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast, and you can get a whole other podcast this week there about current events and goofy jokes and whatever else we have going on. Uh, You can also join the Discord server there, which has been really fun lately. Lots of cool conversations recently about... Uh, Ernesto Cardinal and David Bentley Hart and the Book of Common Prayer. I'm not so good at talking about that, but I do like to read it. You can also find us on Twitter at uh, The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. I just looked at our email the other day, and there were several emails that we lost in our spam folder and also uh, just sort of in in the, uh, the mountain of other things that we get. So if we didn't respond to you and we've lost your email, please don't hesitate to email us back. Um, I'm trying to work through them. Uh, anyway, you can do that there. Our music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson.
keep your hoods up, well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.